We've gotten much more of a response than I anticipated to this three-part series and have heard from many of you that you are sharing it and wanting to share it with your friends, your family, your newsletter list, your podcast subscribers. So while you, love, are joining us here in episode two, I want to let you know that if you go to hillaryrushford.com slash bookstory, which is also linked in the description, you will find all three episodes on one convenient little page, plus an exclusive chapter of my book, which you will probably be curious to read after you hear what was said about it in part three. And when you get that chapter, you will also hear via email updates as to what's happening in real time since this series went live. You can find all of that at hillaryrushford.com slash bookstory, which will allow you to share it because I am hearing that so many people, so many more than I had any idea when I started sharing this really for my healing, really for the healing of anyone specifically in the publishing industry, but I did not realize how many were going to feel healed hearing the emotions and the experiences in this story across the board in whatever industry, career, life experience they've had, even though the details may be completely different and there are people in your life that you don't realize would relate to this so much. I also would love to hear from you and get to know you more personally. So I am over on Instagram and over in stories there daily at Hillary Rushford. But first, my dear, enjoy the show. You're welcome. What was that? You're welcome. With Hillary Rushford. Say it again. You're welcome. In advance. Hello, friend, or new friend, if we haven't met before. Today, I am sharing a story that is really scary for me to share. And of course, as you know, the construction saga that's been in my building, we haven't had the construction for weeks, months maybe. And as soon as I put my derriere in this chair, the construction started again. I was like, oh my gosh, Satan, not today. (laughs) So I would, not because of the construction, but because I'm really scared to share today, I would so appreciate if you didn't hear last week's episode, part one, that you go back and start there. It will make me feel safer if you understand the backstory of why this is so hard for me to share. And it is just wild to me that I have been crafting this episode. It was originally one. And then as you know, from part one, I just recently made it three and I'm still endlessly grateful to my girlfriend who suggested that. But I, I've been crafting this in my head and on paper for the better part of a year. And I still can't say I feel confident that I am sharing it perfectly in a way that I'm not going to have any regret or without the fear that what if someone misinterprets something? What if someone feels there's some hole in the story or something? Just this morning, I was on a walk with Jeremy. We took Freddie to the park and I was sharing things with him that I was feeling nervous about and I decided to take something out that I was going to share. And then I said something else where I said, oh, I should say that. And then we're leaving the park and I'm like, what was it that I said that I should say? And neither of us can remember. (laughs) So anyone who has experienced trauma, I know that this is normal. This fear, this hyper vigilance, this over analyzing that you are going or when you are going back into the same situation that hurt you, which is what I feel like I'm doing by speaking, because just speaking, being myself, 
trying to be professional, trying to do the right thing is how I got into this gaslighting, traumatizing, incredible fallout scenario. So the fact that those are the only things I'm trying to do again makes me so afraid. What if the people or similar people hear this? Could I be re-traumatized? Could something similar happen to me again? But since you are caught up on last week and rejoining the conversation in progress, and since this is what I need to do to move my life forward and to heal, I will imperfectly move along. So what happened to me? I wrote a book. And in the process, I nearly lost my business, would have had to declare bankruptcy if I hadn't already had a successful business for so many years, which I only learned at the beginning of this year, did lose the ability for my husband and I to buy a home as we were planning. Some other elements which still feel too personal to share right now, and as I said, I decided to take a couple things out this morning to feel a little more safe, and spent a year of my life in what felt to my body like a toxic, traumatic, gaslighting relationship that for a year after it ended and two years after it started, I am still trying to emotionally heal and recover from. Because I wrote a book, which I had absolutely no idea was a financially risky decision. I'd heard many people talk about how hard it was to write a book as in the actual writing process, but that part I loved. I had never felt so in flow, so in the pocket of exactly what I meant to do with my life and serve the most people as I was when I was writing this book. I laid out an exact schedule from the beginning. I wrote four to six hours a day. Every day I said I was going to write, which was almost five days a week. Um, I said it would take me six months for a first draft. I submitted it in five. I never had writer's block, which I'm not saying to brag as I don't think that that's something anyone can control. I think there's phenomenal writers that have writer's block. But my experience was that my body and brain felt the best and the most in flow I've ever felt when I was writing. My book is called What Makes Women Feel Beautiful Without Buying More, Weighing Less, or Waiting for the Patriarchy to Fall. Or something like that. We never actually settled on a title or subtitle. And when I say we, I mean the anonymous, quote, title team. These are individuals I've never met or spoke to who, you know, proverbially proverbially met behind closed doors and then would deliver their pronouncement to be via email. Not options, not a conversation, just a decision. Here is the name of your baby. And I would say... Um, I can't picture saying that 10,000 times for the rest of my life. I, I don't think that's the name of my baby. But regardless, my book is a combination of the outside and inside factors that leave statistically 97% of American women saying they don't feel beautiful. It's the stories and the beliefs that have us all and therefore our daughters, nieces, granddaughters in an endless quest to feel enough. Peaceful in our bodies, joyful in our beauty, our beautiful lives and selves, with bodies and faces and hair that are so clearly never enough. Even the models and influencers at the top of the hierarchy are starving and photoshopping and resculpting themselves. 
no one can win in this game we're all trying to play. We so rarely feel we have lost enough weight, have smooth enough skin, a great enough outfit, are confident enough walking into first dates or final interviews. We spend a shocking amount of time, money, and energy on this area of our lives for very unsatisfying results. And I want to help us, myself included, (laughs) have more inner peace and inner and outer confidence. To feel beautiful is a lot of internal exploration, rewiring the racial, economic, religious, patriarchal folks with a megaphone over many, many, many years who got us here. It is also the delightful style principles and getting to play. It's both the meat and the dessert. And my approach to writing is to read and research what all the experts and the researchers have found and synthesize them as your friend who geeks out in this area into a summary and action steps we can truly grasp onto to genuinely fundamentally change our beliefs and our behavior with as many Taylor Swift and musical theater lyrics as copyright laws will allow. (laughs) And at first, the process was going swimmingly. I will put a couple links in the description below. The one is the first Instagram post where I got an agent and you can read the text from my book coach losing her mind over how exceptional these agents were and how beyond excited they were about this book, which apparently was not normal as you'll read in the text. That was March, 2021 was 26 months ago. It's just wild. And then the next post was a video. I would really encourage you to listen to this if you want to understand the story. Instagram is not an ideal place to watch a long form video. So I also exported it to YouTube, which might be an easier place to watch. But I filmed it that night of hearing the agents loved the book. And when you are shopping a book, by the way, you put together, I think it was a 75-page book proposal. So you've sort of written a mini book to get to the big book. And that's how people are deciding that they want your book. But what that video really captures to me as I rewatched it is how much it meant to me to have the validation of these people I respected so immensely because they had a title and they had been in this industry for decades. And I think when you understand that, it will help you understand both A, the position of being an entrepreneur or a creative and why milestones like this, why validation like this is so important to your mental and emotional health and exhaustion, and B, how and why I stayed in such a bad situation for so long how I followed people somewhat blindly (laughs) because I entered with such faith and trust and respect, feeling honored, seen, and respected in return. And I still today cannot explain to you the turn that my agents followed by my publishers took over the next 15 months. But one thing I say in that video that I want to highlight is how grateful I was that I hadn't written the book earlier because it had expanded over recent years to include a layer of of a racial equity element that over many years of crafting this message, because I started teaching this in 2011 when I founded my business as a stylist, that layer hadn't always been there. And it felt like the missing piece. And so I was grateful that 
while I started writing this book in 2016 and thought, oh, great, this will be out by 2017. I didn't understand how books worked. I'm grateful that it it hadn't happened then. It had been delayed for years. And that topic is going to become relevant later in the story. So I get the amazing agents who are seemingly obsessed with me. I meet with multiple different top five publishers. My book goes to auction, which is an insider baseball term that means multiple imprints want it, so they outbid each other, and it's a, a you know big feather in your cap to people who know to say that your book went to auction. And I get the multiple six-figure book deal that my agents say, this is a big number because the publisher believes, and we agree, this has the potential to be a big book. So my agents are thrilled to have me. The imprint has fought so hard to get me. We should all be a match made in heaven. <laughs> But the weekend I sign, I think it was June 1, 2021, I immediately see red flags. There are so very many details in this story that we do not have time to go into. So what I've done is pulled just one or two examples of what I see as three main thematic issues over the year that followed. But there's three things that I want to say first. Number one, I love books. I love books. My dad has a 10,000 book library in our home, floor to ceiling, all four walls. It's been photographed in the LA Times. He has a library at Pepperdine University that is named after him. He has written multiple books. He's in the middle of two others. I have always loved going to bookstores with him, going to used bookstores. I have books in every room of my house. I read books every single day. I will buy multiple forms of the book. I want it in Audible, but I also want the Kindle form so that I can highlight as I'm going along. I have no interest in taking down anyone in the publishing industry. Not only is that not my style, but I still feel that I'm meant to write books. And I wish I didn't, because it would make this so much easier. But as I said, I've never felt more right about anything in my life than when I was writing this book. And I've got four more book ideas in me just in the last two years. I just want authors to be treated with respect. And I want to work with people who want the same. Number two, I'm not trying to call anyone out. I would be sharing this story keeping identities anonymous, even if I was not legally required to do, which I absolutely am, not just because that is unappealing to me, but I've heard enough stories to know that what I went through, while no one I know knows anyone who has experienced anything this disastrous, elements of it have happened to colleagues of mine, just one or two where I had 10. But I don't believe I was with the one Harvey Weinstein monster. I get the sense, which I cannot say across the board because I, of course, do not know every author's experience, but the ones I know, the majority of those have experienced one or more examples of the disrespect I'll share. And number three, I never knew any of that until it was my turn to write the book. And I think This is because of non-disparagement agreements, which I think, and again, I could be wrong, 
are commonplace in the first legal agreements that most every author signs with your agent and your publisher, which means that once it's been shared who you are with, whether on their website, your social media, in Publishers Weekly, which is like an industry insider place that announcements go, even once your book is published, your book could have been published five years earlier, no one can say, you, no one can hop on Instagram stories and say, I am so frustrated. My editor just blew through their deadline without even bothering to email me totally disrespected all of the other work that I'm juggling to pay my bills, and I don't know how I'm going to get through the month. Because that would be disparagement. And everyone, not everyone, and, and some people know who you're talking about if they saw your face on that editor's website. Or as someone DM'd me the other day, yes, I got the best-selling book, but my experience was so miserable, I absolutely wish I'd never done it. You can't go on a podcast and say that unless you put a lot of caveats around it, that it was purely about your experience. You don't like writing. Because if it was about the publishing experience being so miserable, you would be calling out the people whose names everyone can see. First off, if they're in the industry, they can just see it on the liner cover or whatever. They know what that imprint is. That general public has no idea what that imprint is. But people in the know know who that imprint is. But also, it's the names everyone can see in your acknowledgments, which have to include their names of everyone on your team, because they are the ones editing your acknowledgments and reading your final drafts. So it would be awkward for them to be like, um, by the way, you didn't thank any of us, and that just is um, typical, right, that people thank their teams. And you're like, well, yeah, I actually, I really haven't enjoyed this process, so I don't thank you for it. Well, then they're not going to want to finish printing your book. This is my theory as to why no one says anything. I had no idea I was doing something financially risky or how to protect myself. And I follow the people on Instagram and I've listened to the book podcasts, like the, the ones specifically that just interview authors. I have listened to, you know, the whole archive of all the episodes. Not a word. All anyone talked about was how hard it was to write. And I wasn't struggling to write. So I thought I was crushing it and golden and thank you, Jesus, that you have given me this skill set and you have called me to this work and I will follow you and, and spread this message that I believe is going to heal your daughter's hearts. Not that it's a religious book, but you know, you get it. So I talked last week about why I fought for the right to speak and what that looked like. But what I didn't say is that everyone acted, meaning the publisher, the agents, like I had two heads for wanting to be able to tell the truth because apparently no one else does this. Even my literary lawyer was like, I've never heard of someone wanting to be able to tell someone or talk publicly about the fact that this happened to them. <laughs> and to me, I was like, well, number one, I said I was writing a book. I've been talking about writing a book since 2016. And I did those posts you can see in the description where I said I had an agent and I said I had sold it. I get asked every single week, multiple times, 
in DMs, in comments, in my private communities. What's the status of the book? When can we pre-order the book? Hey, any news on the book? Haven't heard you talk about the book lately. If I don't say something, it's going to look like I just quit. Why? Because number two, all stories in pop culture, the writer is the problem. And you are not aware of this until you've been put in a situation where you were not the problem and you start to realize it it pops up everywhere. We were in the most innocuous places. We were watching some Sandra Bullock movie with Channing Tatum. She plays a romance novelist. I didn't even realize she was a romance novelist. It's sort of like a fanciful action movie. Brad Pitt makes a cameo. Anyways, beginning of that movie, she's a romance novelist. And what is she doing? She is in a bubble bath, drinking wine, avoiding calls from her agent or her editor who want the most recent version, and she's the problem, and they have to coddle her, and they have to track her down. Beach Read by Emily Henry, if you love uh, rom-com novels, I'm sure we've all read Emily Henry. Beach Read was her book before the current one is about an author who spends all summer avoiding her agent who is wanting to know what her next book is, when when the next draft is, hey, they really need it by this date. I was going to say Emily. I don't remember the name of the character. Like this narrative is everywhere. It's never the responsible author who was completely on top of it, who's not having writer's block, who is professional, who's doing what they say they're going to do, and their agent and their editor are the ones creating the chaos. The one instance I've seen that was maybe on that side is in at, in in and just like that. Ooh, that's hard to say. The new Sex in the City, which is all I ever call it. Anyways, um, at the very end of that, a spoiler alert if you want to pause, but at the very end of that, it was kind of a traumatizing show to watch, so I don't really recommend it if you haven't done it by this point anyways, but the Carrie's editor says to her, loved the book, um, I just need you to go on a, a first date. I just need you to start dating again in order to finish this book, and Carrie is traumatized by that. Like She's like, I, I, I wanted to write this book. This is, I don't want to have to go on another date. But, you know, I can see the editor's point in that, but that scene where she is clearly traumatized by what her editor is saying is the only instance I can think of that I have observed in the last two years of being in this scenario that didn't say writers are flighty and cannot be trusted and ultimately are the problem. So if I don't say anything, what is culture going to indicate? It, it, it is going to indicate that I was like that. And three, this is my whole business, is my reputation. And I've spent a year researching and writing what is now the best online course anyone has ever offered because no one can afford to spend a whole year writing an online course curriculum. It is not profitable and I would not recommend it, but I can't teach my work without answering the question, wait, but what happened to the book? Wasn't this originally going to be a book? And then it was going to be a course using the book as the textbook. So I fought for the right to publish this podcast and series and next week's episode. First, to save my own business. And second, to hopefully help some other people save theirs. So the first of three core repeating issues that I experienced. Number one, I will call a lack of respect that three business entities have joined together. You have the publisher's company, 
literary agency, and the author, who in the case of myself and my colleagues, is a business owner, an entrepreneur, which means we have to generate substantial revenue far beyond what a book contract is ever going to be for us, unless we were a celebrity, to cover all of the salaries and software expenses, et cetera, of running an online courses and communities business. That's the world that I'm in and the colleagues that I'm looking to. So all three entities have financial goals we have to hit to stay in business, and we all have multiple revenue streams that we are juggling, vying for priority so that we can keep each of our businesses profitable. And there was just a general disorganization and lack of attention to detail on both of their parts that meant my business was time and again the one taking the financial hit because this was a way bigger financial risk for me to spend almost a year full-time working for what in my city is considered a low-income paycheck, even if I wasn't an entrepreneur with multiple six figures a year in expenses, I need to make above and beyond that. So to give you a little more details and help you understand, a book deal income is going to come in, let's say, over three years span of time. That first payment I got covered ballpark a month of expenses in my company. So whatever your salary is, divide it by 12. What are you getting on the monthly basis? And that's what you're getting paid for the year. Meanwhile, everyone else in this business arrangement is making their same salary. No one else has taken a pay cut to enter into this business triumvirate. And then take your income and for easy math, let's say 4X it. So if you make $50,000 a year right now in your job, you need to generate, let's say, $200,000 a year to run a business and cover the other salaries and expenses. So originally you were getting you know, 5,000 maybe for the year instead of 50 as your salary. Now you're getting 15,000 instead of 200,000 for the year. That's just a simple equation to help you understand what I mean when I talk about the position of the entrepreneur entering into a book contract. Now, why would anyone take that much of a pay cut? Well, because if everyone meets their deadlines, so what is six months doesn't become one year or two years, and so the the scope stays within what you have budgeted for, then you believe that there is going to be press and speaking gigs and different things that will help take your business to the next level so that in three or four years' time, once the book has come out, you will have gained back what you lost and made more. Now, maybe people who've published a lot of books will tell you something different, but as a first-time author, that's how I would explain it, my understanding and expectation going in based on where I'm at. Because of course, it's different if you're not an entrepreneur. If you make $50,000 a year right now and you're going to get $50,000 as a novelist, you don't have a team, software, any other expenses, that might be a great income. That's just not the reality for any of my colleagues, and that's who I was watching when I decided to follow the same path that I saw them take. Now, the the money itself is not a dig at publishing. I am not making a commentary on the fact that authors should should be paid more. Should they be paid more? Maybe. Maybe there are wealthy people at the top and writers could be better compensated. We're watching a writer's strike happen in Hollywood. I don't know what the correlations there are of whether there are 
really substantive salaries at the top and then the people that the whole thing is built on are being undercompensated could be true. I don't know. I also will say, I think it's a hard industry. I think there's more competition than ever before for books. We have, we used to have one, you know, three channels at night of a TV show that you could watch and we didn't even used to be able to DVR it. And there was no podcast and there was no YouTube. You had a couple TV shows that you could choose from at night or a book. <laughs> now you have a gazillion streaming services, so many podcasts, uh, so much YouTube. There is so much more competition and they, you just can't charge more. I think all of these industries are struggling because you can't charge $100 a month for a Netflix subscription. You're not going to charge $250 for a novel. So again, my commentary is not on saying that the compensation isn't enough, though I honor anyone who is more knowledgeable and wants to have that conversation. But since it isn't a survivable income for an entrepreneur... We should just be conscious of that because if you allow scope creep and disorganization and are bad at your job, which I will explain more about in part three next week, you could bankrupt the person and their family. And the respect for that reality was just never acknowledged in my experience. For example, like say knowing when I was going to get my second and third payments. Like when you take a new job, you know when you're going to get paid, right? You know when to expect your first paycheck and you know when to expect your second paycheck. But the first red flag I saw, that very first weekend I signed, well, there actually was another red flag in the interview process. We'll talk about that in a minute. But when I signed was in their pitch And by the way, when I say I signed, I mean I like agreed via email. It actually took us, I think, another three months to actually get all the contracts signed. It was wild. But it would be considered signing when we have agreed. We have accepted that proposal. In their pitch to buy your book, a publisher states when they envisioned the book being published. And because of my husband and I's plans for our family and some things we wanted personally, it was really huge for Jeremy and I when this book was going to come out. And we had talked before the book went to auction and decided that I would take less money if an imprint could publish the book sooner. And my agents knew all of this. They knew the personal reasons why. They knew everything intimately about our family. They knew that that was the value proposition I had already decided. As soon as I'd accepted the offer we went with, the publisher asked my agents how long I needed to write the book. And they said six months, which was a figure they already had for me long before we went to auction. And the publisher said, oh, that's disappointing. We hoped it would be three. That will push the pub date six months. I wish you could see my face right now. (laughs) Why? Why are you submitting a legal and financial business proposal that includes a pub date the, the thing we are all working towards, the, the only way any of us actually make the money and recoup things is the pub date. Like that's, that's the money number. Without asking, the number one piece of information you need to give an accurate pub date. I have so many more examples like this where both the publisher and my agents were doing something they had done hundreds of times before. And it was like they were me doing it for the very first time 
and therefore understandably not realizing until after it happened that a step had been missed. Meanwhile, Jeremy and I are shell-shocked. Like, wait, how did that just get pushed six months? Which then also means my next two paychecks just got pushed. How did the publisher not ask how long I needed to write Because that's a needed part of the equation to say when the pub date is. How did my agents not raise a concern from any publisher who didn't, who gave them a proposed date and didn't ask how long that they weren't like, okay, Hillary, here's what we got to say. There's this, this publisher, but it was a red flag for us. They gave us a pub date without asking how long you needed to write. And we always use that as a little internal flag to say they are not logical, they're not thoughtful, they're not organized. And as an entrepreneur, we know, we are well aware that for our entrepreneur clients, we can't allow this scope creep. You have other projects, other launches. And so we we are a little concerned. Then I started talking to author friends, by the way, who said things like, an editor will always make you feel like a failure that you can't write in half the time. Whatever time you have in your head, the editor is always going to come back and be like, oh, you can't do it in half that. Uh, I had heard people say, no book takes three months. That is ridiculous. I heard friends say, all of my books took nine months. But again, I didn't know that at the time. Then I learned that relatively small amount I was being paid, again, compared to my expenses for having a company, didn't include two other people's salaries that I was supposed to pay over five figures in expenses, that just means well over $10,000 in expenses, that I was supposed to pay out of my salary. And I didn't know this until after I had already signed the contract and was months into the experience, which means from, from month one, I'm already losing money. The first was they told me I had to hire an editor. The editor told me I had to hire an editor. And I was like, literally, isn't that your job? Like, what are, what are you getting paid for? I'm so confused. And the second was that I had to hire an illustrator. And when I said to my agents, we had a whole conversation where you explained to me that because they pay for the illustrator, I wouldn't own the illustrations. And therefore, if I wanted to use them like on my website, on the workbooks inside my course, on any you know, physical products that we wanted to make, I wouldn't actually own the illustrations in the book. So what they recommend is that you just work with that illustrator and pay them separately for similar images, you know, images in the same vein that just aren't the exact ones from the book. And they said, we never said that. And I'm like, that was a whole conversation with so much detail. I didn't just make that up in my head. And it would never have occurred to me to even think through who pays for the illustrator or who owns the images because I'm doing this for the first time. That was you letting me know I won't own my images because they pay for it. And now you're turning around and saying, oh, yeah, of course you have to pay for it. And I'm like, that's, that's literally not what you said like a, a month ago, three months ago, whatever it is. But imagine if my husband accepted a job, he's a software engineer, and then a couple months in, he finds out that to keep his job, which again is already considered low income in his city, without being an entrepreneur who has expenses on top of that, 
he has to pay another five figures just to keep his job? He has to pay two other people's salaries under him? Like, what other job works like that? And this is where we start to get into number two, issue number two, gaslighting. Gaslighting is a highly overused term today. I broke down in part one how I mean it in this context, so I will not repeat that again, and I'm trusting you heard that and are caught up on my application of it here. But backing up, that other red flag that I said actually I saw in the interview process, when we met with the different imprints, the one that I went with, they brought their whole team to the call. It was like 12 people. All of my other meetings were just the individual editor. Now, because of this, they were my last choice of imprint to go with. I was told this was a huge sign of respect. It showed they really wanted me, that everybody was totally on board and they'd like brought out the big guns and they'd brought out the president and they brought out the marketing team and all these people to like woo me. To me, it just felt like being on a group date instead of a one-on-one on The Bachelor. Like I just am a personal, intimate, relationships kind of girl. And what I was looking for in those calls, what I thought I was supposed to be looking for was an editor who was whip smart, who was going to push back in great ways, who believed 100% in the mission and vision of this book and 100% in me as a writer, but who was going to bring, like shed light on little holes and make the work better. So I'm thinking, this is my co-collaborator. Like, this is the person I'm building a relationship with. So I get on that call and I'm like, I don't even know who my editor is. I don't remember their face, their name. I don't know if they spoke. No one asked any questions about the book. They, They wanted to sell me on them. They weren't still trying to like dig a little deeper and make sure they were really on board with this book. And to me, that was a red flag because in every other meeting I had, we talked about really substantive issues um, like, like racism and fat phobia and these sorts of things. And I felt like in this call, I just felt like I was the like blonde with big boobs equivalent of an Instagram influencer for them. I felt like they just saw my follower count and that I'm good on camera and I'm cute and they had girls like, hello, if you're listening, um, who listened to the podcast and followed me on Instagram and were already fans. And that should seem great, but because they didn't really push back on the work, it left me feeling, are, are you actually sure you want this book? Or are you just excited because of who you think I am on paper? And do you maybe have a preconceived idea of me and this work? That's a little bit of a tangent, but I have this meeting with them that is supposed to be showing how excited they are about me. And then I sign and we're like into week one of June and I'm like, okay, great. So when is our welcome call? Like, when do I have this call with my editor and the individuals that I'll be working with? And there was no welcome call. In six months, I had one call, phone, video, in-person meeting, anything like that, anything that wasn't an email exchange. I, we weren't, I wasn't even getting like looms or, or video. It was just a, a handful of emails. In six months, I had one call or interaction with them three months into the process. The call did go long, so we finished it with another mini call. But really, from June to December, 
one actual conversation. And if you've heard of the term love bombing, it's when someone makes you feel they are so obsessed with you. They are completely head over heels and then they just ghost or drop you. And the the plummet of that feels so disorienting. I've been in one emotionally abusive romantic relationship that represented that. And it felt like that. Like she wanted this book, this editor who again, her I don't even know her her face for so many months or her voice. She wanted this book so badly. But now she doesn't want to talk to me. She isn't going to build a relationship with me. She doesn't want to help with the book. I have to pay someone else to do her job. She never looked at an outline, never read a chapter summary, didn't discuss the arc, the layout, the tone. It was just hire this person, pay their salary to do my job, give it to me when you're done in five months. And my agents are just like, yep, this is normal. I'm like, okay, except you'll see later, it was not okay. But the tone in all of this, when I refer to gaslighting, was that it was obvious that I would spend my little amount of money and hire an editor. That was normal, that I should expect this $10,000 expense was coming, that they never told me that they said that about the illustrator. Like, oh, oh, you're just being silly, Hillary. You're making stuff up. You're just lying. You're just confused that I wouldn't have remembered a conversation that specific and that I should have expected I was also going to have to be paying for the illustrator out of my small income. Just these underlying implications that I am overreacting or dumb or lying or being a problem for saying, that doesn't feel right to me. And my agents never said, you shouldn't have to pay this. They didn't put this in the contract. You shouldn't be blindsided with these expenses. My agents are just like, yep, this is the way it works. And I'm like, I don't understand. How is no one explaining to me that this is how it works and that when I budgeted for this, I needed to also budget for another five figures in expenses. So you're taking that 12th of your annual salary you're already living off of, then taking another hunk out of it for expenses when you're already months into this thing, which means you're already in a financial hole a few months in. If you walk away now, you've already lost money and you're just three months into the process. So you give them the money (laughs) and you keep working. And then we get into number three, what I call politics. So that summer, right off the bat, they pretty early on, they sent an email and said, we need your author photo and your blurb list. Now, it is entirely unnecessary to have a list of people who are going to be contacted to review your book when you haven't even submitted the first draft of your book. So now I'm juggling this other work against my writing deadline. And I say to my agents, you know, I've I've already done the blurb part at this point, which honestly took quite a few hours because you're thinking, I mean, does this person know who I am? Like you're, you're wondering in what context are they going to reach out? Like, are they just going to email this person and say, Hey, Hillary said you guys are besties and you'll blurb her book. Like for me, it was this real exercise in feeling small feeling like I've failed at networking over my decade plus in this business because I'm so allergic to inauthentic relationships and 
I've been so busy trying to run my business. I'm just friends with my friends in real life. And some of my closest colleagues are not the ones with the biggest followings or titles. Those are just the people that I naturally click with the most and they are not gonna be the fancy people to give me a blurb. So this is also like a lot of emotional energy that I'm putting into this. And I'm sure there's some people that are super confident about the networks that they've built, but I also don't think that I'm alone in that somebody else has put me on their list and been like, is Hillary Rushford going to think I, does she even know who I am? <laughs> like, is she going to feel weird if somebody reaches out and is like, will you read her book? And I'm like, I'm sorry, who? Or like, that's weird that she asked me. I don't know. So you just, you get in your head. It's an energy drain, but I've already taken the half day to do that project. When I say to my agents, I just want to flag This is multiple days of work for a photo shoot. I need to find photographers, uh, find a studio, choose between the photographers, see who's available, um, decide on clothes, order clothes, try on the clothes, find a hair and makeup person, find inspiration images, talk through what it is that I'm going for. There's a half day for everything just around the shoot, doing the hair and makeup, getting there, two-hour shoot, whatever, getting home. While we're there, we're going to want to do marketing images for my company. So now we're going to be building out that list, maybe making it a longer shoot day. So this delays my writing schedule. Like I need to take ballpark collectively three days away from writing to get this photo shoot done. And my agents go, oh, in the future, oh, oh, you don't need to do that right now. In the future, always ask us first when they tell you to do anything. And I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) Why can I not just trust that the publishers are telling me the right things? Why should I assume they don't know what they're doing? And then you're the adult that goes to them and says, no, she shouldn't have to do this now. This is just so foreign to me. When I do a product launch, which includes freelancers who have other clients and run their own companies, it's not just people who work for me full time, I even the, with the people who work for me full-time though, I never ask for things when I don't really need them because I know they could stay working late and meet, miss dinner with their kids when they would have had time next week if it wasn't a fire. I mean, literally just this morning, I texted two members of my team, this is not a fire. I wanted them to know I was having an issue with my phone, but I was like, I'm going to record, record this podcast. I don't want somebody frantic in the middle of trying to get their kids to school this morning to deal with this issue if I don't actually need it done right now. So I am constantly saying to my team, not a fire, but filling you in on this. Not a fire, but if you could get to this by the end of the day. Not a top priority for this week with what else you have on your plate, but saving this for when there's time. And I also never work with anyone where I'm telling someone else on my team, don't trust them, come run everything they say by me. So I refer to this as politics because it's just so foreign to me, this idea that we're not all on the same team. We're not all respecting one another's time. We're not all respecting one another as professionals that have other business revenue streams or even are trying to work towards the same shared goal. On my team, we can all be working to the goal of the deadline for the launch. And I can throw on someone at my team something that requires them to raise their hand and say, I'm not going to be able to finish that sales page for you and do this other task that you want. So so how can we juggle those priorities? But the agents didn't say, 
oh yeah, just tell the publisher that. Point out to them that you're going to have to to deprioritize something and you're choosing not to deprioritize writing. And we're sure they will say that's the right choice. Instead, they're saying, no, come to us and then we'll go have the conversation with them. Like I just, also, why is the publisher doing this in the first place? Why do they not know that I'm writing? I've given them my whole writing schedule. Why do they not know? I'm not the first person to do a photo shoot. How do they not know? A photo shoot is not something that you make happen in 30, 30 minutes. But around the six-month mark is really when the wheels started to come off the wagon. And these three themes, lack of respect that I too am a business, gaslighting and politics start to converge into some moments that I had no idea at the time would come to ruin everything. So I mentioned that I had a clear timeline for writing, like literally what chapter I was doing what week. I had come up with that because you write sample chapters in your book proposal and I had gone through my whole, you have to give your whole outline for the book in there. And I had determined I had three different types of chapters. I had timed myself between the book proposal and my first week of writing to know ballpark how long the chapters were taking me. And I added all that up. And by the way, I would like to say in the end, I was pretty much spot on, like that methodology worked. But in addition to giving them that, a Google Doc they had access to, they also had a Google Doc and a Loom video for me walking them through an 18-month calendar with the marketing for, with this project alongside the marketing for all of my other launches. So they were aware in June that I said, quarter one, 2022, quarter one is my biggest launch of the year. I have my mastermind. It starts on on April 1, so we start working on that launch on January 1. I actually had moved it back three months for multiple reasons, but one of them was because I realized I could finish writing the book first. If I wrote for for six months, January through, uh, sorry, June to December, then I would be able to pivot and work on the launch while presumably other things were happening, copy editing, et cetera. So I write June to November, I get it done earlier because they want it in three months. I was like, I'll try in four. I did it in five. I'd originally said six. Then the editor has it for three weeks and then I'll get it back for a final two weeks before going um, going away for the holidays, closing for Christmas. And in those two weeks, I'm going on a writing retreat. I have already mentioned this that I'm gonna do a writing retreat. I've done a couple of these along the way. I find that I can write for more like, six, seven, eight hours rather than four, five, six hours when I go away. And so it's worth it to me to invest the money to do that. And I know I'll have some more edits in the new year. I know the book is not done at the first draft, but I think we're going to be 80% done because mind you, you're basing this off of a book proposal. They've already seen the outline. No questions have been raised, et cetera. They've handpicked the editor I worked with. That private editor has talked to the publishing editor you know, there, there've been no concerns. So I think that we're on track. So I submit the book. I do not hear a reply on edits weeks. I don't even get a confirmation email like, Hey, letting you know, I got to this. There's no update along the way. Hey, I've had it for a week. I just want to tell you, I got this other project put on my lap. Unfortunately, I'm going to be delayed. There's zero communication. The writing retreat is coming up. I've got a plane. I've got a hotel. My team is expecting me offline for the week. They are scheduled around that and on other priorities. And the date is getting really close. And so I tell my agents, I'm going to email the editor and make sure that I have the edits back before my writing retreat, which I didn't realize until I went to review these emails yesterday, that that is weird to begin with. 
why am I running by them a very basic email? Like, hey, just wanted to check in on the status, remind you of of the timeline on my end, make sure we're still aligned. Why would I be asking someone's permission to do that? But that's the politics that they had trained me into, that you never know what live wire you might be stepping on because the publisher is like a wild horse. You don't want to spook them and they're the horse whisperer and you have to know exactly how to speak to them. I've been in business for over 10 years. I have never had this experience working with a a CRM provider, a web developer, a finance person, an executive coach, a Facebook ad team. I mean, I've dealt with a lot of different industries. I have never had this bizarre experience of like, we all have to tiptoe and there has to be a mediator to just have a business conversation. But my agents reply to what I think was a simple email that I was running by them. And they tell me to lie. And this becomes very important next week in part three of the story. But they say, don't say you're writing. And when I, and I've remembered for a year and a half now that they told me to lie. It was a very pivotal part of the story. But until I went and reread this email yesterday, I didn't realize what they said is, we think they believe, meaning the editor, we think they believe it's their turn to get back to you with edits. And I was like, that word they believe is so bizarre. Believe in this context is saying they have a different version of reality that we are delicately tiptoeing around. Like a product creation and launch is about a factual timeline. You write it down and all the parties keep reviewing it to know what the goals are. And very frequently in my company, more frequently than I would like to be, we got to adjust what the deadlines are. And I am frequently saying, okay, so Kristen, can you make sure that Amber gets that note that Ashley and I decided that we need to push this back? We just communicate to everyone. But I am so brainwashed at this point, or what I really think is I'm just so confused because we're six months in. And I still do not get the culture around here. Like, I am just awkward turtle. I never know the right thing to say because I don't get why there's this power play. Why are we not just all teammates? Why are we like the offense and the defense and an official and the NFL commissioner, like who might all have different goals and don't all have the definition of what winning is because someone's on offense and someone's on defense? Why do we not just feel like, the quarterback and the wide receiver and the coach. And we've all got the same game plan. And with every single snap, we're going to regroup and make sure that we know what we're doing going forward. Because the only way to win is to all be on the same page. But no matter how hard I try, I cannot figure the culture out. So I am just trying to proverbially put my head down and get to the finish line of this thing. So I say in my email that I am going on a, quote, creative retreat, which what the fork does that mean? Like, I'm going away to vision board? I am flying away to sequester myself in a hotel to work on this book because I know I have this huge other launch coming up. I know I have a firm deadline. 
I told everyone in the last email that I was doing this writing retreat. Everybody knows about the quarter one deadline or they've had ample opportunity to. So why are we lying and acting like I'm just going to go give myself a sound bath for the week because we don't want to use the word writing. They told me not to say the word writing in a conversation where all of us are making money because I am writing a book. I'm on a deadline. (laughs) I've got to switch to a big launch coming up. Like no one has a week for sound baths. No one has time for this insanity. But it is just one email thread that I share with you that encompasses all three of the issues. The respect, the lack of clear communication. Like if you're going to miss your deadline by a week, by two weeks, by three weeks, editor, just email. Don't ghost people. It's unprofessional and disrespectful. I would let someone go on my team who didn't have that skill set. How have you ascended through the ranks at your company? And we act like this is normal. Number two, gaslighting. We're going to tell you to do things that feel wrong, that you would never in integrity do elsewhere in business, like intentionally lie to someone else on your team. And then, as you'll hear in part three, they never take accountability for the fallout they cause and blame me instead when I have it in black and white writing that they are the one who gave the directive. And number three, politics. We tell one another to lie to one another, to rephrase the truth so that people can keep, quote, believing what they want to believe. I don't even know how to finish that sentence. (laughs) Instead of what? Instead of just being sane, normal, professional people. As I said, these are themes I've heard from many of my colleagues, and I want to share a few of those examples with you. One said, I told my team I had a high-risk pregnancy and that I couldn't wait to do my marketing when they had it scheduled towards the end of the pregnancy, so could we please meet earlier? But they dragged their feet until the last minute, and the book launch was completely underwhelming. My team and I did everything that we could, but this was my first time, so I didn't know what I didn't know, and they refused to help until I was on bed rest. And ultimately, it left me feeling like, I'm not really sure why I wrote the book if that was it. And I mentioned that story to another author friend who said, she's right, that book had hardly any launch, and I wondered what was up with that. Like, it wasn't even just in this one friend's head. Another friend was like, you know, I observed that. Oh, well, what happened is she told them she was going to be on bed rest and they were like, yeah, we don't care. Um, I've had multiple friends say their publisher's marketing team made lots of promises and then did nothing and their book sales suffered because they trusted them. And it wasn't so much they, they refused to do something. It's that they said they were going to do something. They made me feel, they made me believe that there was press happening and then there was none. And that's where the, the, the gaslighting, the, the lack of respect. Another said, they emailed me to tell me my pub date had been moved back five months to six weeks after my first baby is due without acknowledging in the email that they were aware that the baby was coming. And when I got on a call to point that out, even though they were aware they were literally the first people who knew I was pregnant after my husband. I have multiple friends who've been in that scenario. The publishers and the agents are the first ones to know. So they should be sensitive enough to be like, we got one little date on the calendar here for this author. They said, oh, it's fine. I didn't have to promote it. 
They knew that I would be on maternity leave, so just don't promote it. But why did I put all that work into something to not promote it? It's like they just decided they were fine losing money on the revenue stream of me because I was pregnant and they didn't feel like working around it when their calendar changed. Because again, it's not that she got pregnant and the pub date needed to move. The pub date was set. The pregnancy was set. All of that would have been fine. They then moved it and didn't acknowledge that the one big deadline that she had in her life. She's like, they didn't at all acknowledge that that means I'm going to get less sales, which means a lower deal on my next book deal with someone else. Again, this lack of respect for the other business entities. It's not just about this one revenue stream. If you can walk away from this author and not do another book with them, but if they want to write another one, those publishers are going to want to know what their previous numbers were. And so if they underperform, that affects the lifetime value of what that author can be compensated for. I heard my editor knew that I was working a full-time job and writing my book with a toddler, so I had to get childcare coverage on weekends to do my edits. We had talked through this. They then blew through their deadline without giving me a heads up, so I'd used up all my childcare chips with my in-laws, and then have nothing to write all weekend, and then they throw it at me a few weeks later and want an immediate turnaround as though they're not well aware that I have a job and a child. And every story I've heard that involves pregnancy and small children, I hate this, but the team, as far as I'm aware, was always fellow mothers. And I want to believe it's the men who just don't get it, but it's not. We talk about this in my Healing Burnout course So much of why American mothers are some of the least happy is because of fiscal realities in our country, because of lack of paid maternity leave, affordable childcare, all of the things. And we talk in that course about how it's not just healing burnout for ourselves individually, but collectively in how we vote, what we advocate for, what we pay attention to, to realize it's not just you that's failing. So many women are struggling And therefore, we are the ones we have been waiting for. It's other working mothers that have to be part of advocating for the right policies and also living that out within their own companies, which I can tell you, I was a crazy person to work for in the beginning of business. I would imagine most entrepreneurs are. You are exhausted. You are stressed out. You are insecure. You are terrified. I wouldn't recommend it. I am so grateful that we are a much healthier place to work these days, but I have always been so supportive of the people on my team who are parents and prioritizing that and losing tens of thousands of dollars when somebody goes on a maternity leave because on a small team, there's just no way to, you know, cover for that gracefully as you might be able to in a big company. But that is so important to me to walk the walk as someone who who teaches women about issues relating to women to actually support women. So the fact that, because almost everyone of my friends is predominantly writing self-help books for other women. So the fact that we've got women that are on the teams that are then not supporting the women who is trying to put out the message that supports the other women, like it just, for, for me and my values in my company, is so disappointing to have realized. A many-time author said, writing a book always breaks your heart a little because you know what it could have been if the publisher had the humility to trust what you've built with your audience as proof that for your book, not the whole publishing industry, but for your book, you actually know what you're doing more than they do. 
because it's you talking about this issue to build up an audience that made them want to hire you in the first place. So, so give me some respect that if I didn't know what I was doing, I wouldn't have built up the audience and you wouldn't have seen that I had it to give me this deal in the first place. But I do all of this work and then as soon as I get in, I'm treated as though you know everything and I know nothing. A dear friend said, all I wanted since I was a little girl was to be an author. I've done it three times now and it is the most heartbreaking process that I don't know what my dreams are anymore because I don't think I can go through publishing again. And again, it wasn't the writing, it was the publishing. One friend was pursued hard by an editor and then found out that the person was simultaneously editing a book by someone on the opposite side of their beliefs. So like say you're Anthony Fauci and your editor is also working on a book by RFK Jr. Am I saying that name right? But he's one of the greatest anti-vax proponents. So truly, whatever side of that scientific argument you're on, how can you trust the integrity of someone to guide your work if they might be fundamentally opposed to you? If you're either Fauci or RFK, doesn't that seem confusing that someone would be so obsessed with wanting to get your message out there, but then if they also want the conflicting message, then are they, can you trust that they aren't subconsciously, like which side are they really on? Can you really trust that their edits are going towards your point that you are making? And if they are giving you edits that pull you away from that, it just, that I don't know if there's trust in this relationship. Another uh, friend felt like her edits, her subtitle, her cover were all trying to make the exact opposite point of what she's going for in her book. And if they don't actually want the angle she's bringing to the topic and want to change her intent, then why did they pursue her hard and give her a multi-book deal? One friend didn't hear back from her editor for eight months. And separately, before I knew this about my friend, my agents told me, oh, editors not meeting their deadlines and not communicating with you about it isn't disrespectful. It's normal. We have a New York Times bestselling author who hasn't heard back from their editor in eight months. And I had to say, just because it's normal doesn't mean it's not disrespectful. And like, I remember the couch I was sitting on when I was on this Zoom, because I was like, how were these words coming out of my mouth? Just because you're like, oh, I've had lots of friends whose husbands cheated on them. That's not disrespectful. It's normal. You're like, no, those are not the same things. <laughs> Something can be common and still deeply harmful and out of integrity. But comments like that are why I knew in this process that I hadn't just ended up with a bad egg because my agents were constantly telling me that how I was being treated, which felt incredibly disrespectful and crazy making to me, was normal. And they've been doing this for a long time with many different publishers, different types of books, so they would know. And more recently, I had a friend that was writing her first book, that is writing her first book. She has five children. Her husband has, her, hus- her husband paused his freelance career to do full-time childcare and homeschooling so that she can write. So she's their sole income. And oh, my stomach was in knots. And I said, I do not mean to scare you and I do not want to steal any of your joy and confidence, 
But no one told me this, and I wish they had, so I am telling you. When they say your payment is coming in, say, January, it could actually be August. I've got multiple examples that it could be eight months later before you even hear from them, which means you're not, which means it hasn't been accepted, which means you're not getting that second paycheck, or it could never come. So please don't believe them if you're getting to the point where you can't buy groceries and diapers soon. Because I'll go back to the top. I had no idea that what I was doing was financially risky. For me, six months in at this point in the story, I didn't know any of these anecdotes and experiences from others yet. So I get to the writing retreat and I have a meltdown because I think I was just in, in denial, basically, that she hadn't gotten me my edits back before I went. And I was probably exhausted and juggling a lot. And it's like, I didn't realize until I was there. And she then finally emails and tells me she'll get me my edits a couple days before Christmas. That I realize I have lost my window to write. These weeks just like sand through my fingers. They're just gone. And because there was no communication, I wasn't empowered to pivot. If she had told me week one, what she told me six weeks later, into the new year, I got another project dumped on my lap. Okay, I understand that. That's business. But because you didn't communicate with me, I couldn't pivot with my team and say, all right, you know what? If I'm not going to get those edits back, we're going to work on our our mastermind launch. We're going to do that now in December. And then I will have freed up those weeks for you. But I didn't know because you didn't tell me and my agents told me not to ask. And like, it's like being at a baby shower and you're trying not to use the word baby or you're going to lose your clothespin. You know, they told me not to use the word righty, not to talk about the very thing that I was supposed to be spending my time doing. So I have a complete meltdown in Palm Springs. I was on a call with my mastermind girls. Actually, they'll remember this. They just didn't know what it was about or the details. And I realized I have to either give up income, meaning I'm going to take weeks away from prepping my launch, which means I'm going to lose substantial amounts of money because I'm not going to be able to do all the elements that I would do to sell well, or I have to push the pub date back again, and therefore Jeremy and I's plans for our family. Because that's the only other option. I'm like, you, you snooze, you lose. I'm, I'm not, I don't, I have time to write these in quarter one. I told you that. I will be back to you in quarter two. She might be fine with that. I'm the one that's not. I'm the one that is motivated to complete this project so we can move on to some other experiences in our lives. But I've already taken this huge financial gamble. So I can't walk away now. I care about my family more than the money. So I don't want to keep pushing the pub date. So I decide that I will give more. I will lose more money. I will sacrifice more growth in my business, more months that I can't be on the podcast, more months that I can't be keeping up with Instagram, watching my audience dwindle to make this work. It'll be worth it. Just keep pushing towards the finish line. I had no idea how much worse it was going to get. How I would be told to sacrifice my values, to lose my voice, 
and be left with nothing. Well, no one who watched it happen said anything. The worst parts are coming next week. And I want to quote that, you know, in 10, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days or Less, there's that like editorial media at the top. And there's this girl who always brings really tragic stories. And she's like, it's terrifying, yet surprisingly upbeat. <laughs> well, that's what I want to promise you is to come. Next week, I'll share a specific chapter of the book with you, which I think you'll be very curious to read once you hear what was said about it. And then I am moving my focus to the future. I am so proud of the teaching of what makes women feel beautiful and as passionate as always that this is a message and a method that no one I've seen in over a decade is teaching and every Western woman needs for both herself, our daughters, nieces, granddaughters, and to anyone who champions equity across body size, age, race, or socioeconomic status. It is joyful, timeless style principles and easy organization and the practical outside teaching that empowers you in what you invest your time and money in, aka what you purchase and invest in, and the value you get in return. And it's also the mindset because without the inside, what we do on the outside will never leave us feeling that we are or have enough. It's the personal stories in your family and community, the cultural and historical stories that we have all been indoctrinated into. It's understanding how racism, Christianity, affluence have all pressed us into a hierarchy that is breaking the hearts and confidence of women at every step, even the thinnest, prettiest, most stylish. As I said at the top, No one wins in this game as we are trying to play it right now. And it explores how we can rewrite stories that better support all women, not just ourselves, but all women, how we love our neighbor as we step off the staircase and into what I call the garden. But first, we have to muck through the final weeds of this story, but then gosh darn it, we are choosing joy. So I will see you back here next Your Welcome Wednesday with part three of three. With grace and gumption, you're welcome in advance. Oh, wait. One more thing. Don't miss this. Before you go, love. P.S. Something I'm loving lately is the John Mulaney comedy special that just came on to Netflix, Baby J. On the worst day of this story last June, coincidentally, I already had tickets three days later for Jeremy and I to go see him at Madison Square Garden, and I have never been so grateful to my past self. We talk in my Healing Burnout course about how we heal the nervous system, and laughter is one of the best ways to do that. It was one of the kindest gifts I could have given myself in one of the worst weeks of my life. And you know, I'll actually put a link in the description for the waitlist for the Healing Burnout course, which is not open right now. Um, so it's not about the course, but if you are interested in he- in getting help in feeling less burnt out, I have some free resources that are be- gonna be coming this summer and I'll send them to the people on that list. Because all I was doing last year was top priority, avoiding burnout, for number two priority, getting the book done, and number three priority, keeping my business afloat. That is all I did for a year and a half of my life. And this course came because I was 
fighting for my survival in that way. And I only got it because I had started the year earlier in really exploring on a deeper level how to heal my burnout. I really had started back in 2015 studying how to be less anxious, exhausted, overwhelmed. I talked about how it was real rough in my business in the early years for anyone, poor sweet souls who worked for me. Um, And I came to call that pursuit elegant excellence. And then I went even deeper in 2021, blessedly, right before I went into this nightmare experience. But we did, coincidentally, a survey last summer. My marketing director had this idea, and we asked you what the number one challenge is that you were struggling with. And unexpectedly, the answer came back that 98% of people, their number one thing is we're burned out. You said it in a bunch of different ways, but ultimately, it was burnout. And I went, wait, I know how to help with that. Like I've been trying so hard to survive that I didn't even realize what I was doing was going through a boot camp so I could pass on what I learned. And it's one of those times when, you know, we talk about, you've heard the phrase, there's, there's purpose in your pain, which I mean, you would never willingly go through the pain again. The purpose doesn't make it worth it, but I will say it is a gift in healing that your testimonials for the first few hundreds of people we have go through that course of how much it helped you was also then really helpful for me back in my healing to be like, okay, I did this work myself. It worked for me. I then was able to pass it on and it's helping other people. At at least we have this, at least we have each other. So uh, we got home from Salt Lake City a week ago um, from be with my brother-in-law in in the rehabilitation hospital. And we were so bone weary and depleted. I said to Jeremy, I just need to laugh. So I took a cannabis gummy for the first time in weeks. And gosh, the former musical theater girl in me, like if you don't know my backstory, I did a Broadway tour, the Radio City Rockettes, all that jazz. I just, the musical theater girl in me loves John Mulaney and his gay boy self in a straight man's body. Like, he is just my people, and I wish that he would do a comedy special for me every night of the week. Um, I have loved watching comedy over the last year. Like I said, it's been healing to my nervous system. But I will also say, one that's been a hybrid for me was Amy Schumer's Growing, because it has the comedy, but then the other thing that helped me so much in the last year was watching documentaries by other creatives and seeing them struggle as well and realizing it's not easy for anyone. Our stories were so different, but whether it was Jennifer Lopez, Selena Gomez, Katie Paler, <laughs> Katie Paler, Katie Perry, Taylor Swift, Lady Gaga, Billie Eilish, there were so many that really helped me feel some solidarity in this, especially when I couldn't speak to that many people about it. Um, So the empathy of the hard stories and also the humor. If you are a fellow creative, I hope that somehow these episodes give you that same sense of feeling less alone. Um, And if you think they would do that for someone else, I would be so grateful if you would share this episode in a private group that you're in, text a friend. If you share it to your stories, tag me and tell me what it was that spoke or stood out to you. Um... I'll tell you very few people share things in stories. So while I do not read every DM, I do see every single share that goes to stories. And specifically when someone says like, this is what made me feel seen. 
this is what really stood out to me. It really helps me know as we continue to move on in in conversations um, to take our dialogues deeper. But if you or anyone you know wants to write a book or has another creative project that they are pursuing, I hope that this conversation, which will continue next week, either helps you protect yourself or feel less crazy, feel more empowered, and just know that you're not alone. So I will see you back here next week and over on Instagram in the meantime for the final part of this journey to healing and moving on. Till next Wednesday.